Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to Luke Nichter, who is one of the editors of the Nixon Tapes, 1973. This very large edited volume was published in 2015. I hope that you enjoy the interview that I did with Luke. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to talk to uh, one of the editors and annotators of the Nixon Tapes, 1973, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. The One of the editors is Luke Nichter. Luke, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have, um, uh, I, as we talked about before, not to have read the entirety of this exhaustive um, uh, volume on such an important subject matter. But, but I, I've enjoyed what, what you've, how you've edited and annotated this. And so before we get to the book, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and also about your co-editor. Sure. Well, it's first and foremost, it's co-edited with, uh, with Douglas Brinkley, a historian at Rice University, who uh, I guess would probably describe himself as a presidential historian, although he's written about so many things. Uh, for example, he's been doing a, a series on uh, environmental policy uh, under um, first the Teddy Roosevelt, and then next his next book is on FDR and environmental policy. Uh, so he's at Rice. Uh, I'm at Texas A&M University, Central Texas. And I, I suppose I'm, I'm kind of a historian of 20th century um, U.S. history, especially the uh, post-war period and the Cold War and the presidency. So those kind of t- it tends to be what I do. Uh, a, a strange thing with this partnership that I've had with Doug is that our families actually knew each other 40 years ago and were neighbors on a small street in Perrysburg, Ohio. And I didn't know any of this until uh, a few years ago, but my mother and her siblings were, were neighbors with Doug and his and his sister and his parents in Perrysburg, Ohio, a suburb of Toledo. And so we kind of got to know each other over the last decade or so. And so it made kind of a natural partnership going forward. He had a, had a long-standing interest and fascination with Nixon, the Nixon tapes, from writing his book about John Kerry, from writing his book on Walter Cronkite, both kind of Nixon contemporaries uh, 40 years ago. And so it's been a really great and rewarding partnership to work with Doug on this. Yeah. And, and tell us a little bit more about how this actually came to be. This is not just a book about the Nixon tapes. It includes the Nixon tapes in their transcripted form. So would you walk us back? This is also the second of, of a two part volume on on the Nixon tapes. Maybe you could take us to kind of the start of this and ha- how this project got started. Yeah, a lot of people. That's kind of the first question I get is what in the world compelled you to listen to Richard Nixon for more than a decade now? You know, it's, right. it's kind of it's kind of a joke. I mean, um, people kind of assume if I if I don't have uh, some kind of mental defect uh, at this point, perhaps I did. You know, when I started the project originally, um, but it's really been rewarding. I, and there's not a great story here. Um, I was a grad student, a grad student at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio, or near where I grew up. And just having it pounded early in my doctoral degree, and having that pounded into my into my head from my advisor, uh, Doug Forsythe, 
uh, you know, you've got to find a good topic, a topic that will get you out of bed in the middle of winter with a foot of snow on the ground and get you to the library that you can enjoy working on uh, for a few years at least. And in history, um, you know, the dissertation kind of becomes our first book in our academic careers. So it's much more than just a means to an end to get a dissertation done, to graduate, to get a job, hopefully. Uh, it really became kind of an early career period kind of defining moment. So I was just looking at what was new um, and rewinding the clock. You know, most records in history take, you know, historians do the mopping up job of history in many ways. So first the journalists and the social scientists, and then historians come around decades later. And in part because it takes 20, 30, 50, 75 years to get records declassified from the federal government. And so what was kind of new, you know, in, in quotes, to me at that time, or winding the clock 30 years as a grad student, I'm looking for new topics in history, kind of put me at the end of the 1960s, the early 70s. And so the more that I poked around, um, you know, I had assumed with all the books that had been written about Nixon, Watergate, Vietnam, etc., there wasn't a lot new to learn. Um, so initially I was turned off by the subject, but the, the more that I looked into it, I, I know much more now than I did then, I realized the tapes really hadn't been done at all. The opposite was true, that about 5 to 7% of the tapes had ever been published, transcribed in, in any kind of comprehensive way. So to me, it's, it's a little bit like Edmund Hillary. The challenge to climb Everest was because it was there. It hadn't been done before. Uh, and that's really how I got into it. Now, most of us have some idea of, of what the Nixon tapes were, and they've taken on some meaning beyond what they probably the vast majority of us actually on the tapes. But you just sort of refresh our memory a little bit about about what these tapes were, how the, how they how and why they were recorded, and and some of their just larger significance before we get to the details here. Sure, uh, some quick basic uh, facts and information about the tapes, and e even this, forty years later, uh, our understanding of these, even the basic facts, is evolving. Uh, you know, for example, the National Archives initially estimated there were five thousand hours of these recordings. Then it was 3,700. Now they say 3,451. So you can tell we're getting a little bit more specific. Taping began um, in February of 1971. Uh, taping ended in January, uh, July, excuse me, of 1973. So we have about uh, two and uh, you know two and a half years or so of Nixon's uh, Nixon's presidency. So not the entire presidency. And there wasn't any particular reason that taping started. Uh, I mean, he was starting to do some things. We look back in hindsight and say were, were pretty important. The planning for the trip to China, the beginning of the salt talks with the Soviets. I think the negotiations with Vietnam were heating up. But nothing particularly important. Uh, I kind of wish taping had started two months earlier because we would have gotten that great Oval Office meeting between Nixon and Elvis in the Oval Office. Um, right. So taping re began and ended uh, those time periods. Uh, when we learned that taping happened, uh, it was publicly disclosed during the Watergate hearings in July of 1973 by Alex Butterfield, the subject of a recent book by Bob Woodward. Uh, we assumed that, that Nixon was the first one to tape. Um, now we know more now that taping actually started way back with Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Truman taped, Eisenhower taped, Kennedy taped, Johnson taped. But what Nixon did was two things that was different. He taped more than all the others combined, 3,451 hours. And he also, his recording system was sound activated. The others before him turned it on when it suited them politically or personally, and they turned it off when it suited them politically or personally. And, and part of the reason these tapes are so much more comprehensive and why they were so much more damaging to Nixon was because it captured everything. He didn't selectively turn it on and off. Now, with that understanding of what the tapes are, 
What did you do with them? What does it mean to edit and annotate a set of, of uh, uh, thousands of, uh, of minutes of, of tape? What, what did you actually do? And, and what did you and Douglas Brinkley do together to edit and annotate all of these? Sure. There's several kind of tangible steps that were involved. And, and each one, because the tapes are so large, just took uh, you know, progress is measured in years, not something like this, not in days, weeks or, or even months. And really, the first thing was uh, more than a decade ago, the only way you could even listen to the tapes was to travel physically to the National Archives um, to put headphones on, to listen to listen to them on their antiquated equipment there. And if you wanted to make a copy, you were free to do so, but you had to bring your own blank cassettes. I mean, where do you even find blank cassettes today? Uh, so this shows you the overwhelming problem. Uh, these tapes really weren't accessible, even though the National Archives had released them publicly. So first, the task was to copy them uh, from the National Archives. And I did that for several years uh, with the help of the uh, National Security Archive of uh, George Washington University and Tom Blanton, loan staff and equipment. So several years to copy them onto DATI. Um, and I had to copy them in real time, 2,000 plus hours. And then from there to digitize them uh, again in real time, 2,000 plus hours, so that I could put them up on a website, nixontapes.org. Um, so first copying them so I could listen to them at home, much more efficient than traveling at my own expense from the National Archives each each time I did so. Uh, digitizing them, putting them on a website, really um, was was not meant to be a public service. It was really kind of a selfish act in the beginning. It was just so I could make it more convenient for myself to use them. But of course, it's become a much bigger public service. And then really from there, kind of deciding what's important. Where do you start? Um, to this date, as we talk, I've probably done around 15% of the tapes transcribed, which doesn't seem like a lot. But each time you make a pass through them, you you think you're getting the most important information. So we're digging deeper and deeper and deeper into different subjects now. So um, that those were the basic steps just so I could do this work. And for these books, um, you know, no publisher had ever committed to a book uh, broadly in any way about the Nixon tapes, not even a university press or an academic publisher. So to get a commercial press was really unprecedented in a variety of ways to get these two big books out there. So what Doug and I did, uh, the way this worked, was we studied Nixon's schedule a lot, maintained by the Secret Service. There's all kinds of official logs, who Nixon talked to, who he called, who called him, who visited him, who dropped by, what official events, what private events did he do. And so for these two volumes, we really focused on looking at his schedule, what Nixon himself spent the most amount of time on. Because uh, that's our way of determining what he thought was the most important. These were, after all, his tapes. So it's his presidency from his vantage point, not anybody else's. And so we divided up these transcripts, and you know, they were each volume was around 1,600 pages, single space, that we had to listen to and transcribe. And Doug took a pass through all these. Um, he wrote many of the, the, um, the headers before each conversation, helped me to wean this down to a manageable book for a commercial publisher, uh, for so these books are divided into two volumes, mm-hmm. and, and the most recent volume is just recently published. The last one was published uh, in 2014. Would you tell us very briefly uh, about the division of this and, and what appears in the, in the book uh, that the people may have seen and that has been out and has been quite successful over the last year? And then we'll talk about this year's uh, volume. Sure. Uh, it's a great question. Uh, when you're dealing with this huge volume of material, you have to divide it someplace. I mean, there's only so much that can be between the covers, the two covers of a book. And for 
us, uh, what I see listening to the tapes transcribing for a decade is there was a big change in momentum um, and priorities. Really, it's it's Nixon's reelection in November of 72. And I think like all presidencies, you're at the end of a term, a first term, you're reelected. There's a change in momentum and initiatives and priorities. You've got assistance on their way out. You have new faces coming in. You have new policies being proposed. And um, this is definitely true for the Nixon years in 72 to 73. So the obvious way for us to break this was kind of 71 and 72, kind of ending on, uh, we end that first volume with, with Nixon's reelection, with kind of uh, the war is finally winding down. And we start the, start the next volume um, in 73 with really kind of everything's new again. It's a new term. You have uh, Nixon's uh, inauguration. You have, new, there's, a, there's definitely a forward looking momentum. Whereas the first volume, everything is on the way to the summit, the summit being the reelection, the summit being Nixon's trip to China, his trip to Moscow in the spring of, of 72. So, yeah, we, we, we broke the volumes with that change of momentum that takes place. And one more thing, you know, some people ask, you know, how can how can the second volume on 73? Like, wait a second. Did you just say tape stopped in July of 73? So how can 73, which is just January to July of 73, be actually bigger than all of 71 and 72? And it's, it's another great question. And it's just it's the way the tapes were set up. When when taping started in February of 71, uh, Nixon tried it just in one or two places. And he liked tape, taping so much, he kept adding new taping locations. So the, the taping system, so to speak, wasn't running on all really all cylinders until the summer of 72. So we're creating many more tapes on a weekly basis from mid-72 through 73 than we were at any point in 1971. So it kind of made the two volumes symmetrical in terms of size, roughly. But also it's really that change in, in momentum in the administration that made it the obvious breaking point between the two books. And let me just say that the, the size of each of these is, is quite remarkable. They will sit on anyone's uh, uh, bookshelf and, and be a very impressive weight to the uh, to one side or the other. That's right. So so in this in this newest volume, the Nixon tapes, 1973, are there any sort of bits of the tape that, that just stand out to you that you take any particular enjoyment from that that told you something that you didn't know about Nixon or something that others might find interesting in some way? Is there a way for you to pick out your your best one or two moments? Yeah, I think the thing that strikes me kind of overall about the 73 book is, is just it's a it has a much darker tone. And not just because of the content that it's it has a more and more Watergate, you know, the deeper that it goes through into the book. And, of course, we read it today kind of knowing what's going to come. I mean, taping stops in July of 73, so we don't have the final 13, 14 months. But, obviously, we read it knowing what's to come, that Nixon will be the first president to resign in disgrace. But just beyond that, the tone is just generally darker, even on subjects that should be good for Nixon in terms of his legacy. So one example that stands out was in, in May of, uh, of 73, so toward the latter part of the second book, uh, Nixon has this homecoming for the POWs that are returning from Vietnam um, and their families, their spouses. I mean, it's 600 people. It, it's the largest event even today ever held at the White House, so large that Nixon, they had to erect a special tent on the South Lawn of the White House complex. And while you would think this was like a peak of Nixon's presidency, I mean, it's just a great photo uh, opportunity. He's got John McCain there on crutches, I mean, all these, just an amazing time. But yet one of the new conversations that was revelatory for me that we have in this book is that night at one in the morning, 
his chief of staff, Al Haig, calls. And Nixon suggests resigning as president, that he's not his best. He's really, I, I, I avoid medical terms, but, you know, he's depressed or paranoid or something's not right with him. And Nixon suggests, I'm not at my best. Maybe I should step aside. And Haig responds, oh, no, you can't do that. That would throw foreign policy down the tubes. If you were to resign, that would be the greatest shock to the nation. And of course, that's what it was, you know, only a, a little more than a year later. So I think these conversations that I think speak to Nixon's mood are particularly revelatory. And what makes the Nixon tapes different than all of the presidential tapes, it's kind of the intangible that we gather from the man, from the person uh, that we don't have. These unscripted moments, I think, speak to me about who Nixon was as a person. Yeah, uh, the book, again, is the Nixon tapes, uh, 1973. Uh, this has been edited by Luke Nichter, who you've heard from, and Douglas Brinkley as well. Luke, thank you very much for all of your time uh, working on these tapes and, and also your time today talking about them. Oh, thanks for having me on. A lot of fun.